Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Fascinating Nouns, the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, here at this curious nexus point, we explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, blah, 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 blah. This all pales in comparison to my guest tonight, who is Dr. Don Constantino, voodoo expert. He is a retired UCLA professor, having taught voodoo to freshmen for 25 years. He's an author, Sacred Arts of Haitian Voodoo, V-O-D-O-U, and In Extremist, Death and Life in 21st Century Haitian Art. Both of these are available on Amazon. I should also mention that In Extremist has been turned into an art exhibit here at the Fowler Museum in Los Angeles, featuring post-earthquake Haitian art. Uh, this is some pretty crazy stuff. Uh, I mean, amazing voodoo-influenced uh, Haitian art that is just absolutely mind-boggling. Uh, I'm going to put a gallery up on the website. We'll take a look at that. That is a traveling exhibit now. It was here at Fowler Museum, at the Fowler Museum in Los Angeles, and now is traveling across the country. So check out the Fowler Museum to see if it's coming to a town near you. Oh, that is a mouthful. For someone who's so excited, I sure am blathering on a lot. Let's talk. Let's get right into this uh, with Dr. Don Constantino. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So you are a voodoo expert. I am. Um, you're a very white guy. How did I someone am. like you get into this? <laughs> uh, the odd thing is that when I went to Haiti for the first time, which was in 1986, I went basically because, like of a lot of other people who read books, um, voodoo has always had a resonance. And since my subject was uh, ostensibly Africa, uh, if you're interested in Africa, you ultimately uh, wind up crossing the Atlantic like Africans did to constitute the majority population in places like Haiti or Cuba or Brazil or Alabama or Mississippi or New Orleans. So I had for 15 years been a scholar of, uh, of African cultures and I said, well, let me bring this interest back to the New World and to Haiti, which I will go to in order to see what happened to Africa when it arrived in the New World in the form of, of uh, 300,000 slaves that uh, constituted the population of Haiti at the time of Haiti's revolution, which we'll get into in 1791. But when I discovered when I went to Haiti was that it was a footnote to nothing, that it was its own entity uh, that it was fabulous and interesting in its own right, and not because it casts a shadow on the African experience or even the American experience. It's a sui generis culture and, uh, and absolutely grabbed me from the beginning. Uh, what does sui generis mean? Uh, it means it comes out of itself. It, doesn't, it owes nothing to anybody else. Hmm. Um, so, you, so, you, so you went to Haiti as a... Um Kind of as a diversion from studying from, African culture. Yeah, exactly. And so did you get did you get sucked into voodoo while you were in Haiti? Yes, of course I meant to get sucked in. It wasn't exactly like I was pulled, uh, crying and screaming against my will. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I discovered two things: one, that voodoo was very familiar, and two, that it was very strange. The familiar part of it were the pictures of the Catholic saints. I grew up in an Italian, or more specifically, a Sicilian. Catholic household, which was full of saints pictures and burning candles. Mm -hmm. Not so much at my house as my grandma's house. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, nobody ever went to church, but uh, 
everybody was a big worshiper of the saints, which would sound very familiar to Haitians. Mm -hmm. uh, and the saints played a real role in lives. Um, and so that all looked really familiar. But what was strange and what I couldn't account for and what kept me coming back for the next 25 years was spirit possession. I had never really seen people possessed by entities, spiritual entities, and becoming something other than who they are as human beings. I guess I had read about that. And if I had looked further in the Africa that I had lived in for five years previous, I would have found it. But I wasn't looking for it in Africa. And I guess I was looking for it in Haiti. Haiti is very small as opposed to Africa, which is endless. So, um, so just to make a connection here, so voodoo has a lot of African roots. So this is a, a religion. So how would you define voodoo? Let's, let's, start, let's start there. Voodoo is what happened to Africa when it shipwrecked in the New World. Okay. So you say you bring a bunch of African beliefs, like, for instance, in the existence of spiritual intermediaries. Uh, this, is not a, this is not a complex idea. Spiritual intermediary means something between a high God, like, say, God the Father, and you or me as a human being. Something exists in between. In Catholicism, that would be angels and saints. Mm -hmm. In voodoo or in Santeria in Cuba or in Candomblé in Brazil, they have those kinds of intermediaries too, which to outsiders look a lot like Catholic saints. But to people of African descent, they look like a lot like their old gods in Africa none of whom were supreme. Most African religions, most black religions, um, posit the existence of a single high God who made the world and then is not much interested after that. Sort of like the way Unitarians think of the world, you know, that God is a clockmaker uh, mm -hmm. and the clock is set ticking, but after that, you know, you're on your own, baby. You know. <laughs> he walks away. So, hands. yeah, he walks away, but... People who like a little more assurance, uh, they project the existence of intermediary spirits who, as I say, look a lot like Catholic saints to the Haitians, and the only available images that they have for their gods were produced by warehouses in Mexico or Italy that produced colored lithographs of the Catholic saints. And so the Catholic saints and the African spirits uh, became syncretized which is the technical term for blending of beliefs or rituals or even cultures. And so voodoo is a kind of a syncretized religion that's basically African in the sense that all of these gods that are seen as intermediary gods, um, they all have roots somehow in Africa or in the African experience, but, but they've come to look like Catholic saints or in more contemporary circumstances, they began to look like uh, NBA basketball players. Uh, they began to look like Dennis Rodman, who also looks like the African god of war, Ogun. Uh, lately, they've begun to look like Barack Obama, who gets painted on the side of, of trucks in Haiti, not only because he's Barack Obama, but because he looks like Dambala, the father god, of the voodoo pantheon. In other words, voodoo just sucks in imagery. And the available imagery in the 19th century and then going well into the 20th century with the images of Catholic saints. But now we live in a worldwide emporium of images. 
And so movie stars, politicians, sports stars, all of them also can begin to look like the old voodoo gods. So let's unpack that for a second, because that's an interesting concept. I want to kind of go into why they have the Catholic imagery, number one. And number two, how come they can switch it to other pop culture, in a sense, images that have the same meaning to okay. them? Because most, you know, when I, I grew up Catholic as well, and the imagery is sacred, you know, and, and to have a very fluid imagery, that's, that's, a new top, that's a new kind of idea for me. The key to uh, the key to that question is African beliefs about about a high god or monotheism. Africans don't have the concept of the desert religion that there's only one way or one god and everybody else is wrong and more or less should be killed, uh, which has motivated uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam for a couple thousand years. African beliefs, and this is all over the continent, um, in terms of uh, traditional views of God, is that there are many manifestations of God. And the God that is known by the Igbo people or the Congo people or the Yoruba people is true, but so is the Christian God and so is the Muslim God and so is God's all over the world that there, that there are many paths to the divinity. And so it's not strange that when they came to the New World and confronted a religion which they were forced to adopt, which is Catholicism, that they saw the, the, uh, the, the relevance of these Christian saints or even the high God, the Father God, to the spirits they were worshiping. And they thought of these Catholic images as the way their gods looked in Europe. Um, so, so, so it's like the Virgin Mary, for instance. You know, I have a Muslim son-in-law. My, my daughter married a Turk. And so I brought him to a feast for the Virgin Mary in Boston one summer. It was the big feast in North End in the middle of August mm -hmm. uh, for uh, Our Lady of Schiaca. Schiaca is a town in southern Sicily. Uh, and I was explaining this to my Muslim son-in-law, and he was shaking his head, and he said, well, how can there be a Virgin Mary in a town in southern Sicily? Isn't there just one Virgin Mary? And I said, yeah, well, but she appears in a lot of places. And whenever she appears, <laughs> yeah. she looks different, okay? And so that was sort of a voodoo way of answering his question, hmm. that, that uh, it's ultimately probably one spiritual source, but it takes different forms in different places. Mm -hmm. And the Haitians know their own gods because, uh, because their gods are close to them. Mm -hmm. um, but they feel that because their gods are real, that they would be known in other costumes and by other names in other parts of the world. Well, I want to I want to hit one point because um, we kind of glossed over it, and I think this is this is this is what to me kind of piqued my interest about Haitian voodoo was that, from what I understand, you can nail the history for me. It was required to be converted to Catholicism it was. within a week of being from the slave trade of hitting which the meant soil actually system. very little. You know, it was a justification for the slave trade was to say, well, we're Christianizing these right. people. Yeah. Um, there was no attempt to catechize uh, the slaves. And so the slaves knew baptism because that's what they were required to receive. Right. And beyond that, they didn't know a whole lot. And they liked baptism. They liked baptism so much 
that it's recorded in 18th century histories that they wanted to be baptized over and over again because they thought of it as a purifying ceremony because they had such ceremonies in Africa. Oh, right, okay. And Jesus, uh, well, maybe he was like the god of death because all they knew of Jesus was that his figure was pounded on a cross. Right. And so that must be, and that's still till today. Jesus is often conflated with the Baron Samdi, mm -hmm. who is the god of death in, in voodoo, the god of death and resurrection. Mm -hmm. Very important combination. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was this constant search for analogs. Um, so this conversion to Christianity, you can't make much out of it, uh, except that they really liked what they saw. Well, the, the point yeah, of that, And that's a really important point, yeah. because most commentators who really haven't studied voodoo closely but go down there with biases, often biases in favor of Haiti, say, oh, well, these saints' images are false because they were only trying to hide their true beliefs. That's a total misunderstanding of how the African imagination works, how African religion works. Um, well, because the point I wanted to make is that initially they had to, I mean, it was required for them to incorporate that religion into their, or at least they had to be baptized. Right. But then, so the idea was to cleanse them of their traditional beliefs, and they kept their no, beliefs. No, their idea was to justify slavery. Okay. So it had nothing to do. They, basically, the French didn't give a damn about yeah. whether they were Christian or not. And the few people that did give a damn, like the Jesuit priests, were thrown out of Haiti yeah. because they were seen by the French colonials to be too sympathetic to the Africans. Right. Well, I guess the thing I wanted to say is that, you know, they, they had to basically hide their, their former beliefs and they used Catholic imagery in order to still keep their religion and rituals going under a different kind of guise. Well, the truth is we don't know a lot about what was happening in the 18th century, um, but I wouldn't agree to what you just said in the sense that I never think, I have never thought that it was a matter of hiding their beliefs. I think book, it was a matter sir. of, Hold it is second, not. Sir. It is in your book, sir. Oh, contraire, <laughs> my friend. Yeah. My book says that from the, in, from the beginning, they liked these images, yes. that these images related to what it is that they knew and believed. Uh, you know, Africans are much too subtle for this sort of thing, you know? And by the way, why would they have continued to use these images when they drove the French out in 1791. Mm. And until today, the voodoo temples are full of pictures of Catholic saints. Ain't nobody forcing this. Uh, they like what they see. Well, maybe it's one of those things where, you know, when something happened 200 years ago and it's incorporated so solidly into the belief structure that you don't weed it out later on. Like, you're not 200 years later going to suddenly stop using the patron saints. All right, you're a clever lawyer. I'll give you, I'll give you that as, you, I'll give you that as, uh, as, as one of many possibilities for an explanation. Yeah. But the explanation that doesn't work at all is that these are merely ruses or pretenses, yeah. and that they really don't refer to, um, they don't really refer to the African gods that they represent. Well, one thing I do want to say is that we can both agree that what did happen is some incredible art because in your book let's give you a quick plug uh it's called Thank you. sacred arts uh, it's a haitian voodoo, voodoo. uh spelled v-o-d-o-u oh we're you're get, good we're gonna get to spelling in a second <laughs> um but i mean some of the stuff is pretty cool in there i mean the art especially baron samdi as we spoke before the interview is a pretty snappy dresser and in, in that i mean he's 
the imagery is amazing, the outfits, and, and as we get into, you know, the rituals themselves, the people who were possessed by the various Loa, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, Loa. Loa, really, but, yeah. Um, they take on the personalities of those Loa, correct? Absolutely, yeah. That's an important point. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> you're an almost an A, you're an A minus student. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the the other thing to remember is that they take on the clothing, but they also change clothing. Mm -hmm. That uh, there is nothing old fashioned or fusty about these gods. You know how Jesus is always in you know some kind of you know white woven robe always. that we imagine was high fashion in Palestine right. two thousand years ago. Well, the gods are much much hipper than that. I mean, they're always dressed in whatever latest stuff is around. Baron Samdi, who you're quite right in saying is a, is a dapper dude, mm. um, his original dapperness comes from the fact that he was understood to be a Freemason. And Freemasonry until today wears the costumes that the Baron Samdi wears. I mean, it's the, the black top hat, the, the, uh, the tuxedo, uh, that uh, that he's a, a very formal looking dude, but that the reason why he doesn't change is that Freemason remains a very important thing in Haiti. Along with it isn't just Catholicism, which was an important institution which was sucked up by Vodou and made to work within their own sense of aesthetics and religion, but also Freemasonry. And since then, other things. I mean, Hollywood now has become an important source for imagery in, in Vodou. Or CNN. I mean, the fact that they see the world before them. Haiti is not a backwater. It's never been a backwater. It wasn't a backwater in the 18th century. It was France's most valuable colony mm -hmm. because it fed the drug dependencies mm -hmm. of the 18th century, which were basically sugar and tobacco. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, actually meant a lot more to France than the 13 bedraggled colonies that the English depended on for codfish. Uh, so France fought like hell to keep, to keep Haiti against this, this slave rebellion, which began in 1791, um, and ultimately lost the war, even though Napoleon threw everything he had at trying to suppress this slave rebellion. It was the third great revolution of the 18th century, and our kids are never taught this in school. There's the American Revolution, there was the American Revolution, uh, there was the French Revolution, and there's the Haitian Revolution. Hmm. Uh, and uh, it scared the hell out of the world. For the first and only time in world history, slaves with their religion of Vodou rose up, destroyed what was arguably the strongest world power at that time, which is Napoleonic France. And guess what? Had a huge impact on the history of the United States because once France lost Haiti, what the hell did it want with Louisiana? Right. Louisiana was only there to support Haiti, yeah. which was the valuable colony. So we gained one-third of our country as a result of Napoleon despairing because the gods of voodoo had defeated the French army. Well, now let's talk about that point. I want to get... Let's hit this point first, but I do want to talk about the actual tenets of voodoo for people so they understand exactly the pathion and the, what, how it works. But let's talk about that point while we're on it. That was, in history, 
you know, there were people who still today, Pat Robertson being one of them, who says that, that the, the Haitian people made a pact with, with the devil in order to defeat one of the greatest army in the world. Did, I mean, do you know about that? How does that uh, Oh, I know about let's talk, that. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. In, you're a college I professor. Let's talk about it in brief. I would love to talk about let's that ignoramus and his comments. <laughs> yes. Okay. The, the way that that comment works would be that he, Pat Robertson, or other primarily Pentecostal ministers, by the way, Haiti is absolutely sagging under the weight of Pentecostal and evangelical missionaries that have come down to save these people from the devil. Now, who is the devil? The devil, of course, are the, the divinities of voodoo, the Loire. So yes, if you say that the Haitian Revolution was sparked by a pact that the Haitian people through their ministers or through their most valiant heroes, made with the with the, uh, the the voodoo divinities, the loa, then you're right, because in point of fact, every Haitian will tell you that the great revolution that began in August of 1791 was inspired by a ceremony for for two of the voodoo divinities, Ogun, who is their loa of war, and Ezeli Danto who is their loa of hard-bitten country women. And so together, these two loa were invoked. Blood was shed because the gods eat blood. And a blood oath was sworn. And the blood oath was cut off their heads and burn their houses. That is a line that resonates in the Haitian imagination. Coupe tete, boule kai. Cut off their heads and burn their houses. And I, I, I say those lines and I still get goose pimples. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the cry of slaves who are outraged. This is the worst kind of slavery in the world. The French, unlike American slavery, the French worked people to death. They didn't count on natural generation to continue to supply slaves. They counted on, on fresh input of slaves constantly so that most slaves could not count on a natural death. They would just be worked to death. So the rage of the slaves is expressed through the religion. So yes, it was violent. And within six weeks of that blood oath to the gods of divinity or to what Pat, Pat Robinson would call the devil, um, within six weeks, so much of northern Haiti was on fire from the plantations being burned, the boule kai, the burn their houses, um, that the smoke could be seen in Bermuda, which was 600 miles away. Wow. Six weeks. That's intense. It's intense. Man, it's a really important story. And who knows it? You yeah. know? Well, I got it from your book, so you know yeah, well, it. Yeah, well, two we, of us know it. You and I and a very small coterie of. Now, his, millions of listeners will know. Well, this. now, all your tens of millions tens of, of listeners. Millions. That's right. <laughs> Um, well, so so let's talk about the, the tenets of the religion. Okay. Like, how's it structured as a religion? The most important aspect of the religion is that there exists uh, uh, a, a whole nation of spiritual doubles for us as human beings. They have shared our history. They have uh, nurtured our ancestors and will nurture our children. And these are the spirit intermediaries who we've been talking about called the Loa. Uh, the Loa will help you through life, uh, provided that you feed them, provided that you create a relationship with them. 
if you create a relationship with these spirit doubles, then you are not alone in the world. You are assisted by them through all of your life crises. And these spirit doubles can be contacted through music and dance, which is basically what a voodoo ceremony is. You dance and you sing until the spirits come. And when the spirits come, they come to counsel you, they come to cure you, uh, they come to ease your way through the difficulties of life. Underneath these, or, or, or rather over these spirits, is a high god who the Haitians call Grand Met, the great master, which is a term they pick up from Freemasonry. Mm. The Freemasonry always refers to God as the great maker or the great master. Uh, or else bon Dieu, good God. That, that, get, that gets the Catholic idea. So bon Dieu is like God the Father. Grand Met is like the master of the universe. Created the world, but is too busy to concern himself with whether you have a job or not. Um, that's the job of the loa. And the loa will do their job if you do your duty to the loa. Uh, they'll see you through life. They'll see you through a good death. And uh, they won't see you into heaven because there is no heaven for individuals. Or rather, heaven is here on earth. You die, you go under the ocean, and Haitians say you go back to Africa. And then in four generations, you're reborn. Hmm. And you're reborn within your lineage, within your family. So people are always looking for grandma whenever a new baby is born. Hmm. And so it's a constant re spiritual recycling of souls. So reincarnation is a part of this. Yes, in it a way is. Sense. It is. It is. Although that process can be hijacked, and this is where Hollywood comes in, if that regeneration is is hijacked, which is to say if the spirit doesn't go back to Africa, doesn't get sort of cleansed, and it's understood it's a kind of a four-generation thing, that if it doesn't get there, if it gets locked in, in, in through some kind of black magic or through some kind of, of malevolence, then you become, hold on, you become a zombie. And this is where zombification. You've done this before. Boom! It. You beat me to it. <laughs> so how does that work? Well, that's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing because, like so much of the religion, it's something we, we being outsiders, presume to know and only understand a little bit of, like our general ignorance of what the word voodoo means. Zombie, yes, but zombies have an important role to play in voodoo. Although mostly it's not one of sort of the fearsome brain eaters that is the contemporary image of zombies. It's mostly, as I say, an arrested spirit that needs to be freed from this arrest. And we'll get into how that can be done. Uh, but it's mostly a spirit that they think of as caught, not the body. There is, there is a belief that extreme form of zombification would revivify a corpse and that you would be sort of like an animated corpse and um, and and I, this is widely believed in Haitian folklore uh, although it's not an essential part of the religious belief it's a folkloric belief the way that zombies have become a folkloric belief in our own culture um, most people will claim to have heard about X Y or Z having seen a zombie, but very few people have said they've ever seen a zombie themselves. So it sort of becomes like Bigfoot, 
mm-hmm. or uh, you know citing Elvis at Piggly Wiggly or whatever. Right. You know, people believe that these things exist, and they know somebody who's seen them, but they haven't seen them themselves. So that that I put aside as legend, the body stuff, but the spirit stuff is is an important part of the religion. It says that there are people out to get you in the world. There are malefactors, which is what the Haitians would call them. And that you have to be on the outlook for, for, for people like this. Uh, and if you think that a spirit has been captured, there are ways to free that spirit. And one of the ways to free that spirit is to feed their body double salt, because it's understood mm-hmm. that the taste of salt will will bring back your natural spirit and free you from the curse of the zombie master. Um, and so it becomes a really important metaphor in, in, in Haiti and in voodoo, I think, because the metaphor really is, what do you do in life when you're trapped? What do you do when there is no way out? And in a society as poor as Haiti is economically, um, a lot of people feel trapped. Mm-hmm. You know, they feel that they're caught in dead-end situations where things will never get better, where they will never have enough to feed their children and so forth. And it seems like they're leading a kind of zombified life. So zombies become an important metaphor for misery, actually. Mm-hmm. Haitians aren't afraid of zombies. They pity them. Mm-hmm. And they certainly don't want to become one, but zombies don't eat your brains. Well, that's probably why they don't fear them. Yeah, right. I mean, we fear them because they're going to eat our brains. Exactly. They don't come into American folklore, you know, until the 1920s. You know, Americans, uh, the American army occupied Haiti from 1915 to 1934. And the Marines that came back, almost all of them being Southern boys who Mm -hmm. were sent down there because they knew how to take care of black people, Mm -hmm. i.e. suppression. But they did come back, and a few of the brighter ones wrote books that turned out to be absolute bestsellers during the Depression. The most famous being uh, a book called The Magic Isle by a guy named William Seabrook. Mm. Um, And that book directly inspired the great zombie movies of the 1940s. I Walk with the Zombies or White Zombie. He said this idea didn't exist in American popular culture before that stuff that was brought back from Haiti at the beginning of the 20th century. Haiti plays this really abnormal role in American history, you know? Mm Because it is the one colony that ever freed itself from slavery, it became the epitome of everything that white people had to fear about black people taking revenge for all the shit that white people have done to them. You know? right. yeah. So Haiti, this little tiny country that's mostly mountains, uh, desperately poor, becomes this enormous threatening place. Right. You know, because... Jesus, they rose up and they killed their slave masters and they freed themselves. And Thomas Jefferson, you know, was terrified. There's this wonderful, if you walk into the Jefferson Memorial, they've got his, they've got comments or or quotations from him around the rotunda. And the one that struck me most was, uh, was Jefferson saying, when I consider that God is just, I tremble for the fate of my country. What is he talking about? Of course he's talking about the fact that as the most uber-intelligent man in the United States, he knows slavery is wrong. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know how to get off the tiger. Or rather, he probably does know it, but he doesn't, isn't willing to pay the price. You know. Right. And so he's the one that institutes this embargo 
on Haiti that persists until Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. Uh, and it was only under Lincoln that we recognize Haiti and end the embargo on the island. Um, wow. So if Haiti is wretched, one of the reasons why it's wretched is that it's been tormented by the white world ever since 1791 for the unforgivable sin, which Pat Robertson reminds us of, which is that they've had the temerity of, to freed themselves. Wow. And we're not grateful to white people for doing so. Yeah. Well, let me ask you one other question uh, that I should have asked you before. Why did they pray to the Loire of war and hard women? Seems like a very interesting combination. <laughs> well, war, obviously, because they're going to have to rise up to kill the white men. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Hard-bitten white country women. And what does it's that interesting. mean? It's <laughs> interesting. I mean hard-bitten. Hard-bitten. Yeah, hard-bitten meaning... Uh, did I say white women? I thought so. That's a, that's that a, seems a, weird. That's a way Freudian that's slip. A, yeah, okay. that seems weird. I don't know how many hard-bitten white women I don't even want to go there what it says about myself. Okay, sure. So let's talk about hard-bitten country women, which okay. is what I really meant them. to say. And there's probably more because hard-bitten country women are really a backbone or maybe the backbone of Haitian society. Mm. Okay. It's the women who work hard on the farms. It's the women who are the small merchants. You know, Haiti is, in, if you go to Haiti today, what you see is sort of basically one vast market, which reminds you of West and Central Africa, where most Haitians come from. I mean, everybody is selling something, and most of the merchants are women. Hmm. Uh, and so women are really the structure that holds the society together. So it's a combination of the kind of the fierce testosterone of the male, which is exemplified in uh, the Ogun figure, the military figure, uh, and then the, the peasant endurance, which comes out of this female figure of Ezebi Danto. Mm. So the two things together are the strength and the fearsomeness yeah. of, of the religion. I have a friend of mine who, <laughs> who one time described uh, voodoo as, uh, you know, Donald, voodoo is not a nice little religion. And I think that's a very important thing uh, to remember. That is, a, I think most religions are born out of the collective experience of people. And if your collective experience is the most brutal form of slavery ever devised by uh, the the uh, the devilish ingenuity of uh, of your fellow men, then you would expect that you'd have a pretty tough religion coming out of this, yeah. a religion that knows how to take care of your enemies and knows how to help the weak and the poor. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that. So, what do what do the rituals look like? Have you seen any in person? And oh, what, many, what, many, what do you many. feed the Loa? We didn't talk about that. If you think of a voodoo ceremony, you have to think about a, a dinner party that's thrown for the gods. So voodoo is very expensive in the sense that if you invite the gods, you can't serve them second-rate stuff. I mean, if you invite the gods, you have to serve them the best booze, and you have to serve them stuff that you would only eat a few times a year, which is to say pork or beef or, or even goat meat. Uh, whatever you like, the gods like at the highest level. Mm -hmm. So you're planning a dinner party. You make sure you have the right animals to be killed to serve food. You have the best booze and you have the best musicians because the gods love to dance. And so to this dinner party, you invite all your friends and the drummers come and they begin to play and people begin to dance and they dance around a center pole, which is uh, 
which describes every voodoo temple. It's called the poton mitin, or the middle pole. And eventually the dancing gets hotter and the evening gets longer. And the drumming rhythms get more irregular. And sometimes the, the, the drum beats are shockingly irregular and people are caught, caught in a step that they uh, didn't expect and they're thrown backwards. And instead of sort of that, that offbeat moment when, when rhythmic expectations are broken, that your mind cracks open and the gods have a way of coming in. Mm. And so it's generally in the dance movements and in the hotter and hotter dance movements that the gods will come. <clears throat> and once the gods come, uh, they, they, the dancing continues, but the gods then begin to circulate with, with others who are at the ceremony. And as I say, then they began to to either dance with you or to sit down quietly and talk with you uh, or to demonstrate through their bodily actions things that you ought to be doing. So it's this fantastic conjunction of the material and the invisible worlds coming together under the rubric of this joyous celebration that is really the main ritual event of the religion. Um, and uh, and uh, as it's sometimes said in comparing voodoo to Catholicism, in Catholicism you pray to the gods and in voodoo or in Santeria or in Candomblé, which are all variants of voodoo, you become the gods. So this, is, so this religion is based on spiritual possession. Exactly. That's the most important thing in the religion. And who's possessed? Just who's who's the head of the ceremony? Who's the, what are voodoo priests? What are they called? What are the characters? In, the in un, unlike most world religions, the priesthood is divided sort of equally between men and women. The priests are called ungans, and the uh, the priestesses are called mambos, and they're absolutely equal. Um, and they they are spiritual adepts, meaning they go through a series of initiations where they have certain techniques for con for contacting. The loa that uh, that are more advanced than the average initiated person, but you have to be initiated in order to dance on the floor of a voodoo temple during a ceremony. In other words, I, I compare the ceremony to dinner parties for the gods, but the only people who are invited to the dinner party are people who are already initiated into the religion. Um, but there are grades of initiation, and at the highest grade of initiation, when you become an ungan or a mambo you have the most direct access to, to these loa, these spiritual entities, and you, in fact, begin to speak for the community. And it's through you that the gods are first invited and then enter the bodies of all the people, potentially, who are on the dance floor. Mm. Those who are not initiated can become possessed by spirits, but if they do become possessed, that's a sign that they too need to become initiated because the burden is too heavy for somebody who's not possessed. It could, it's understood to be able to drive you mad if you didn't know how to deal with this. So how do you become initiated? Oh, there's regular rituals. Um, and you have, to, you have to apply to become initiated. You go to a priest or priestess and you ask to become initiated and you go through a long kind of period of seclusion uh, in which you're taught the various songs that are apropos for 
uh, each of the divinities. You learn the appropriate dance steps. You learn all of the designs that that um, that act as a kind of insignia for the gods that are used to decorate temple walls and so forth and so on. And uh, what's called vive, vive, uh, veve, veve, yes. And uh, and then through this initiation process, you're you're taught how to strengthen your body, how to strengthen your head, so that you can bear the weight of a spirit coming into it. Uh, and um, this can get awfully complicated. In uh, the Cuban version of the religion, Santeria, your head is actually slit open. Uh, tiny cuts are made, and certain medicines are embedded in your head. Um, wow. that, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's a re- it's, it's it's a heavy duty responsibility. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Um, so what what when you say feed them, what do you feed them? What do the sacrifices look like? Well, I told you that they like what you like. Yeah, uh, oh, but you don't give them like roast beef. I mean, like, what is that? What you do? Like, oh, you do, you do. For Ogun, for instance, who we've mentioned already as yeah. the Lawa of war, his favorite food is is beef, and that's why he can only be celebrated maybe once a year. Because how often can you you afford to kill a cow? Mm-hmm. So a cow would be sacrificed, as they say, which is to say, it's killed. Uh, as far as I know, that's the only way you can eat an animal. Uh, if you're a human being, is to kill it first. Hmm. Uh, but it's killed ritually, which is to say prayers are are uh, are said over the uh, animal, as is happens in Islam or happens in some forms of Judaism, where animal sacrifice is still practiced. And uh, the gods conveniently uh, don't really like to eat meat. Hmm. The meat is shared among the congregants. That's what I was wondering. The gods yeah. really like the blood. Yeah. Blood, particularly, is the medium that connects the visible and invisible worlds. So the gods like the the blood, and sometimes they like the burnt bones and skin. And the poor human beings are only stuck with the steaks. Right. So <laughs> after the ceremony, the food is divided among all those who come to the ceremony. And a kind of hello, communion takes place. Um, which is, you know, got real analogies to the sacred banquet in, in Christianity, right. the, the bread and wine that we eat. Yeah. But they, the votoists, throw in goat and chicken and pork. Although, you know, those are real, these are really rarities, you know, I mean, because it's very expensive to do this. So in that way, when, was it Bush Sr. talked about Reagan's voodoo economics? Quite correctly, if you use the word voodoo to mean insane, um, which, of course, has nothing to do with V-O-D-O-U, right. but has everything to do with American perceptions, which is V-O-O-D-O-O. Um, but there really is a voodoo economics, which is to say that people did save their best cow, their best pig for the once-a-year ceremony they could afford. Um, but the meat, is, believe me, the meat is not wasted. No, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> well, you know what's Not to go off on a tangent here, but it would always struck me as crazy about animal sacrifices is you're not really sacrificing anything the animal is sacrificing its life like how do we have why would the you know what what did the people sacrificing they're not sacrificing anything they didn't you know it's not well it's but not in, their life they're giving up and well but they're giving up and certainly in Haiti they're giving up the sale of that pig or they're giving up the sale of that cow and you know they're they're feeding their neighbors with the meat that they're not charging them for so, yeah. yeah, no, 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 there is that. Um, do you think the Loire care about the economics of the situation? 
Oh yeah, the Loire are very concerned about economics. They're, 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 just, they're just like the Haitian people with an exponent. <laughs> you know, poor people are always very concerned about money and what things cost, you right. know, so oh, absolutely. And the Loire will know if they're being shortchanged also. Mm. You know, there's some Loire that really like good champagne and if you try to bring them a bottle of Cook's champagne, you know, you're dead in the water. Right. You know, they might want Mouet et Chandon right. and they don't want some cheap shit from Northern California, right. you know. Um, so, so yeah, no, 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 they're, they, they care. They care. So you've seen rituals in person. Oh, have, often. Have you have you seen possessions? Have you been possessed? I have not been possessed. Uh, I uh, I have not put myself in a position to be possessed. I've seen many possessions. And what is so? What what does a ritual look like from your standpoint, from from Western eyes? It's fabulous. <laughs> I love yeah. to go to Buddhist ceremonies. Yeah. Uh, a the music is great. Uh, the drumming is unbelievable. And then, but the but on a less facetious level or a less pleasurable level, it's an astounding thing. The one thing that you can, the one thing that you know in your heart of hearts, when you see this ceremony, is that whatever else you want to call it, it's real. You know that whatever else is happening to these folks dancing around that potomitan on the temple floor, some profound change has taken place. It is not a matter of acting out, or even not even a matter of a Stanislavski method. You know, it's not. It's not. Whoa, they're really into their role. It's some transformation that is profound. And I think that that's what's kept me going back to Haiti for 25 years. Is that I've never really understood the nature of that transformation. And I think you have to experience that transformation in order to appreciate it. Now, mind you, there are millions of Americans who, who say they have that transformation when they go to their Pentecostal churches, and Beat they get, me to it again. and they get possessed that. by the Holy Ghost. Speaking and I'm not, I'm not here to say that that's a valid or an invalid experience. I've been to Pentecostal churches basically out of interest to see how they compare to the, um, the Vodou ceremony, and all I can say is that the Holy Ghost doesn't seem to have much of a personality. I mean, they just seem to pass out when it happens. Right. Whereas when it happens in Haiti, they don the costume, and if it's Ogun, they pick up the sword, and if it's Baron Zamdi, they put on the top hat, or if it's Erzuli, they put on her wedding dress, and man, they have a time, and they know all the dance steps, and they know the language, and Ogun grab his crotch and say, my balls are cold, give me some rum to drink. <laughs> and uh, Erzuli will start swooning and weeping because she's kind of a, of a, uh, of a soap opera queen. All of these, wow. he, the gods have intense personalities. Wow. And so I think among other things, it's a form of, dare I say, entertainment also. I think that that's one of the functions of religion. I mean, you go to a high mass in Italy, and you know it's a pretty ravishing affair. You, know? mm. um, you go to Haiti, and in a poor society, this is where most people's only touch with luxury comes. Yeah. Um, well, let, let's talk about some of the mystical aspects of it before we before we finish up. Um, so, there's one of the key parts is is sacred objects. Yes. So, mm -hmm. how do those? How do fetishes? How do magical protection? How do these things kind of fit into the? the belief system yeah there's a that's a good question actually it's an important one thank you uh, you're welcome thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, because it gets to a really important principle within the religion which is that the line between 
the material and the immaterial world, or the Haitians would really say the visible and invisible worlds, is, uh, is, is very thin. And uh, unlike, unlike most of us in Western society, uh, which is imbued with science, although I read in the paper all the time now that the majority of American people don't believe in evolution, so I'm not so sure about this science mm. orientation. Wow. But in any case, to Haitians, that kind of strict line between between the visible, tangible world and the invisible world is, is a constantly changing one, which is to say that immaterial things can become material things, as we've seen with spirit possession, but also material objects like bottles or um, uh, dolls, uh, which, of course, famously voodoo dolls, right? Yeah. Um, or uh, actually any kind of uh, a bottle of perfume, a bottle of champagne, anything that would relate to the divinity can be suffused with the spirit of that entity. Um, Haitians will sometimes talk about, or voodooists will sometimes talk about baptizing a bottle or baptizing a drum, for instance. All the drums used in the voodoo ceremony are considered to be the equivalent of loas that they're mm. considered to be sacred themselves. Okay. And so therefore, a drummer can never become possessed during a voodoo ceremony because he's already possessed. Mm. He's already serving the drum, which is a god. But that same thing can happen with a bottle or a doll. A voodoo priest can offer it a sacrifice of, of rum or, mm. or a blood sacrifice of some kind. And, uh, and the, the spirit of a, of a loa can be... Uh, can be uh, induced into entering that object, and that object then becomes what the Haitians would call a reposoir, a, a repository mm -hmm. of a spiritual essence. And uh, sort of not that different, it, at least conceptually, from what Catholics think of as a consecrated host, which then becomes the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I know I'm gonna have Catholic listeners fainting all over the world from this <laughs> yeah. analogy, but the analogy is there. And the analogy is, it rests for all religion that sees the material world as sacred as well as the, the invisible world. And I think Haitians do that, that they see that they don't see a separation, a dualism between an imperfect world and a perfect divine, that both the divine and the, the, the visible world are full of both perfections and imperfections. Mm. So if I were to take that, so like you said, the classic case is a voodoo doll. You're a Segway machine, by the way. Um, so the the voodoo the voodoo doll. Yeah, I know a lot of a lot of shit, but thinly. Go but ahead. That's, so, the, <laughs> the, uh, so the idea is that it's a sacred object. So what you do is you imbue it with the basically the life essence of the person that you're trying to connect it to, and then stick pins in it. That's the idea behind the voodoo doll. Is there any real life basis of that? I mean, that's how it kind of exists in. Yeah, well, ironically, uh, I've worked in Haiti for more than 25 years, and I've actually never seen a doll with pins so stuck into it. I, I'm not saying that it, theoretically that couldn't be, mm -hmm. because what you've just described is correct, and it's the universal form of magic. It's uh, contagious magic. What you do to the thing that you're looking at will happen to the person or thing that it represents. Mm -hmm. So that's a universal kind of magical thinking. Um, 
But the Haitians are, this is a sophisticated society. They have a lot more imaginative ways of dealing with dolls than simply <laughs> yeah. sticking pins. Uh, I could bring you into my study right now and you'd see some of those kind of twisted ways that they can deal with these objects to make them effective or operational. Where the pins stuck in dolls comes from, I believe, is French magic. I think the French, there were 30,000 Frenchmen in, in Saint-Domingue, which was the name of Haiti when it was a French colony. And a particular form of their magic, most of the Frenchmen came from Brittany or Normandy. And so Breton or Norman magic was often involved with sticking pins in images. And I, and I think that that might have inspired some Haitians, but it wasn't ever an integral part of the religion. And, um, and Haitians could see the sense of it. But as I've said often, they have much more imaginative things to do with dolls than simply stick pins in them. Okay, that's fair. Um, so why is there, <laughs> so this goes back to an, a point we made earlier because I just was thinking about this. How come there are so many French words in the- The, the Creole? Yeah, and, and just in the, the lexicon of, of language. Like why, why is there, everything seems to have, it's a kind of a, goofy version of French, you know, like, no, it's like a pigeon, you know, it's a pigeon language, yeah. which is in a pigeon language is, uh, is by definition, a language of contact between two people who have no other language in common. So a pigeon language deals with a radically simplified grammar. Um, and then a bunch of loan words, uh, and the loan words in Haitian Creole, uh, basically come from the French, but the grammar basically comes from uh, the grammatical structure of African languages. So just the way the religion is a combination of African structural ideas about the divine and the nature of divinity, uh, but, the, but the personification of those ideas often takes the shape of Catholic saints, mm -hmm. so that the Creole language has a grammar which relates far more to African language grammars than it does to French, but its vocabulary is, I'd say, in the majority of cases, derived from words that have their origins in French vocabulary. So you see how neat a, a correlation that is with the religion and even with the culture in general. Mm -hmm. So you have a African grammar and uh, and a French lexicon. Well, it's just, it's just crazy that they would, after winning their freedom, they wouldn't have abolished all French words. You know, I, mean, I guess we didn't... Yeah, but language is never a matter of legislation. You don't abolish, a, you know. In Ireland, you ha by yeah, law, and you have and, to learn Gaelic. And what percentage of the Irish people speak Gaelic? If it's 5%, that's high. Most Irish speak people know words. Speak it or use words. it. Speak it or use they, it. Well, they have to learn it in school. Right. But unless you live in County Mayo, right. uh, you know, you're That's not likely true. to use this language in true. any way. And it's, no, the one exception to this, an extraordinary reception, exception is, of course, Israel and Hebrew. Right. Where they did manage to revive and reconstitute a language. That's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they were the Haiti that, that, the, that the freed slaves inherited certainly didn't include a school system. Yeah. And, uh, and if you wanted to do that, you'd have to have a school system. Yeah. So this language that the Haitians speak, this Creole, is not terribly unlike the language that's spoken in the other French colonies of the, uh, 
that were existent in the 18th century. In other words, a version of Creole is really what we think of as the patois that's spoken in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Not the, you know, not the charming New Orleans accent, but if you go into the countryside, people still know Creole, and it's, it's very close to Haitian Creole. Mm -hmm. Or you go to the islands, Martinique or Guadeloupe, uh, Dominica, they'll understand Haitian Creole. And you go around the world to places that used to be French colonies like Mauritius, and I talked to a, a Mauritian a woman a couple of years ago, and it was absolutely amazing. We could speak to each other. She using Mauritian hmm. uh, uh, Creole and I using uh, Haitian Creole. No kidding. Yeah. Um, well, let's finish up with the, talking a little bit about the differences between Louisiana voodoo and Haitian voodoo. I mean, they're, they're similar but different. Yeah. I, let's go back to the, our discussion about the Haitian Revolution in which began in 1791 and ended on January 1st, 1804. Uh, the difference between those two scenarios uh, in terms of population is that when the revolution began in 1791, there were 30,000 French people in, in Haiti. And at the end of the revolution, there were three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which means you had to count for 29,900 and blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, how do you do that? Well, a substantial number were killed. Uh, a substantial number of others fled back to France. But, and this is the important answer to your question, a substantial number went to New Orleans. So that by 1804, after all, New Orleans was newly a part of the United States in 1804, uh, more than 50% of the population was from Haiti um, mm -hmm. in 1804, having fled the French Revolution. French people having come to Haiti with their slaves, uh, having escaped, or else Haitian freemen, because there were also free uh, uh, people who had freed themselves from slavery. Uh, they were called Jean de Couleur in, 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 in Haiti, people of color. Um, and so these people fled to Haiti, and I mean, fled to New Orleans, and what did they bring with them? They, bring, they brought with them their worldview, including their religious views. But they didn't have a culture in back of it. In other words, it seems to me, and I'm by no means an expert on, on what happened to voodoo in, in New Orleans, but it seems to me that the kind of big religious structures that sustain the ideas of voodoo, what we were talking about earlier, this idea of intermediary gods or a distant high god, or how these gods are, are, are invoked through initiation ceremonies and so forth and so on, a lot of that was lost. And what was kept was the folklore of the gods, mm. including the magical spells and, and so forth and so on. And that's a living presence till today in, uh, in, 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 in Louisiana, and not just in Louisiana, but throughout the Gulf Coast and then up the river. You know, uh, uh, the Mississippi Delta is really a hotbed of, uh, of voodoo, but it's not called voodoo anymore. It's called hoodoo. Mm. And hoodoo is, I believe, the folklore of African religion without the theology. Okay. okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. Yeah, that does make sense. Um, in no way to disparage either New Orleans or Memphis, which are two of my favorite towns in the world. Yeah. It's just that um, you can't look for the uh, the consistency of belief that you would find in uh, in 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 uh, Haiti. That makes sense. 
Um, well, let's let's stop there. We're out of time, but uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. Yeah, it's been uh, fun. You're a good student. Thank I, you. I move you from A minus to thank, A plus. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> so your book is um, Sacred Arts of Haitian Voodoo. Yes, uh, or my last book, which is just published last year. Let's push it. That's far more, far more relevant to our discussion for today is called uh, In Extremis, Death and Life in 21st Century Haitian Art. And it basically... Uh, follows the career of the Baron Samedi oh, up until now. Up until okay? five up minutes until ago. Up until five minutes ago. <laughs> wow. of, including his role in the earthquake of 2010. Oh, no kidding. Um, well, so how can people get that book? They can get that book as how do we get our books in general by going to Amazon, Amazon right? That's <laughs> true. Uh, Amazon.com. Or if you're in L.A., go to the Fowler Museum, which is they got the grace to have let me do a number of shows and publish a lot of books through them. Oh, no kidding. And and you are a professor at UCLA. I'm a retired professor. Retired professor at yes. UCLA. And anything else you want? Do you have a vanity site you want to push? I assume you're, you seem like you're very active on Twitter, I imagine. I am not active on Twitter. <laughs> I am not active on Twitter. No. You have to read my dense books in order to get to know me. Or else come over and have a glass of rum with me. <laughs> Uh, well, anyway, thank Dr. Uh, Dr. Don Constantino. Thank you so much for well, being here. Well, thank you, Dan. Lots of fun. Yes, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Good night. <laughs>